you might remember the story of Enron. Essentially, it was a failing company, and what it had left was its reputation. Its reputation, it found, was something that could be leveraged in order to get further and further investments from new investors, while pretending like it had a stable funding source by creating shell companies, companies which took that money, funneled it, and funneled it back to Enron as something that looked like profits. Of course, this was highly illegal, and ultimately led to dissolution amid the 2008 crisis, one of the worst economic recessions in modern history. But Enron, and financial companies writ large, aren't the only ones who have discovered this tactic. And what might collapse because of it isn't just the stock market, but the ability for people to find information at all. Hi hi, welcome welcome, this is Metapol with me, Cactus. <laughs> In the recent days, the American media and media around the world, particularly in Western countries, have done a 180 degree turn on the lab leak hypothesis. Essentially, the idea that improper safety protocols could have led to experimental viruses escaping from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, possibly causing the coronavirus outbreak. As I've said before, this is only one of many possibilities. We still don't have enough information to know for sure. That might change as more investigations are started. And recently there was also a leak, according to the Wall Street Journal, that US intelligence reports found that three scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology were sick a few months before the outbreak was first detected. Of course, a caveat that I really want to emphasize here, that many other sources, even ones that are usually skeptical of these types of intelligence reports have, is that of course, intelligence reports, particularly from the US government, can often be inaccurate, misleading, or intentionally false. They are a motivated part of the American government with particularly geopolitical goals, and that has to be kept in mind when looking at any information that could be from them. Not only that, but this type of reporting is by definition unconfirmed. There are no documents, there are no reports, and from the time of recording, it looks like that they have not actually been able to track down these scientists and try to confirm for sure whether the story is true or false. That being said, it is one data point, and as I've talked about in previous episodes, we should be looking to find out as much information as possible, both as each of us on our own, and also as governments or citizens of a government, or citizens participating in government in these developed democracies. However, there have still been many holdouts, and not just for good faith reasons. There have, of course, been many counter-conspiracy theories, ones that are much more outrageous than what they accuse of being conspiracy theories being spread around, 
including from established outlets such as the New York Times. This includes the idea that the lab leak theory exists due to racism. We've already talked about much of the factual evidence on this episode and previously. However, I want to look at one specific route that may be possibly responsible for this narrative. This does require, unfortunately, diving once again into the culture war. Essentially, there is a conspiratorial ideology that includes adherence in New York Times and other established news sources believes that racism is a motivator of all action. This is clearly a conspiracy theory because it implies mass conjunction, the same low probability phenomenon occurring on a wide scale, something which is almost definitively the root of many conspiracy theories. Moreover, it propagates through many of the same social media channels and strategies that have been so effective in propagating things like QAnon or election conspiracy theories. In fact, the strange isomorphism, the similarities in character and in interaction between parts of these two conspiracy theories, QAnon and racial conspiracy theories, is strikingly similar, possibly due to their internet-native spread. One of the more idiotic implications of these types of conspiratorial ideologies as well is that there is collective guilt for a given race. The most frequent example that they use is that modern-day American whites, who were not born in the time of slavery, who were not alive 200 or 300 years ago, are in fact responsible for the actions of the people who were holding slaves at that time. Of course, this is an illiberal notion at its base, and is much more of a moral judgment, so it can't really be wrapped in the rest of the conspiracy framework. However, what this creates is that the exact same patterns are matched with regards to other events. Now, some adherents to these types of ideologies will say it only applies to white people, and that's a different type of discrimination and prejudice all on its own. By the actions of many of the people who adhere to this type of ideology, it seems that this isn't even the case for them themselves. Why? We return once again to this lab leak hypothesis. Of course, there's the possibility of bad faith and corruption as well, that they're bringing up this narrative either to defend Chinese economic interests, which they may be connected to through corporate ties or advertising, or through a cynical political ploy for influence. However, as this behavior has been concentrated around adherence to that conspiratorial ideology that I just described, you can see the link pretty clearly. Those who believe that all white people are responsible for slavery are also the ones who tend to believe that if the lab leak truly occurred, implicating the Chinese government and Chinese state researchers, then this would be a negative against all Chinese or all Asian people, something which is blatantly ridiculous. 
as much as people try to isolate these types of ideologies and justify their conspiratorial delusions by saying that they only target white people for as much of a justification that they can mean for themselves, it seems to be incredibly difficult to keep this controlled. Of course, my stance on this is obvious. You should not be associating the actions of any individual, whether it's Xi Jinping, whether it's individual scientists, whether it's people who are living in a country hundreds of years before the present day, before anyone who is alive now was born. There is nothing that is relevant to one person's moral value or standing other than the actions of that person themselves. I do want to, once again, offer a bit of a caveat. I stated earlier that there is mainstream support from various news organizations and political parties, and that is only partially true. It is completely true that there exists adherence at each of these major left publications. If you want details on that, you can look at my Twitter at meta underscore pol. However, I'm not going to name people on air because I don't want them to get even more excessive publicity for the simple act of being a conspiracy theorist and arguably being a racist. However, this fundamentally silly argument is only one nail in a very large coffin. I've talked previously about the rapidly expanding reinforcement distance, particularly as a problem in journalism, that people who create these unhinged narratives and people who report blatantly false statements are not held accountable, that there are more firings for political reasons for people making their own opinions known rather than for failures in the journalistic process or in reporting basic facts. But there's one additional layer to this that the institutions themselves have been using to keep the fire away. That is what I call authority laundering. Remember from the introduction, the business practices of Enron creating shell companies in order to redirect cash. Now, what is the major currency of news organizations? If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you already know that it's attention. Even in environments with much lower than normal reinforcement distance, you eventually reap what you sow. There has been decreasing trust, particularly in those institutionalized newspapers, and television networks due to their failures in reporting. What can these networks do to put something in the way of that, to put something to reaffirm their identity while not really giving up much control? Create a shell company, of course, and in the modern day, these shell companies don't go by subsidiaries. No, that would be all too blatant. Instead, they brand themselves as fact-checking organizations, such as factcheck.org, or capturing institutions that pre-existed this time, such as Snopes. These often explicitly liaison with those exact same major publications that they often ultimately align their views with. 
then they create a source of false authority that ends up just looping back to the same problem. Reporting and reconfirming the same false narratives, including ones that opposed the lab leak hypothesis or opposed any investigation whatsoever into it up until a few weeks ago. What it changes is the ability for people in the public to notice. Well, you may have realized that the New York Times' standards are rapidly dropping. You may have realized the same for other papers, television channels, or websites. However, what you didn't see a lot of problems with were these shell companies, or shell quote flat. But what you didn't see a problem with is the stamp that gets issued with these various quote fact-checking unquote organizations, which ultimately also gain influence through coordination with social media platforms. If you're still hesitant that this isn't the main function, then ask yourself, do these organizations really have a higher journalistic standard than any of the papers that it's supposed to look at? Do you really think that factcheck.org has more people working on sourcing information, on getting accurate reporting, than the New York Times, than the Washington Post, than the Wall Street Journal? Of course not. Their sole product is false authority. That is their business model, because they are not selling anything else. There's not much practical solution here, aside from what you've already heard. Shorten the reinforcement distance, keep your eye on the ball, and try to make sure that what people are held accountable for is their actual job. However, one more dimension of this is how weak it makes Western media ecosystems to interference by foreign entities, either government or business. One clear example here is the Chinese government, which has explicitly publicly put pressure on the WHO, on other countries, most notably Australia, and threatened economic measures for those who seek a proper investigation, not just into the possibility of a lab leak, but also into the standards that were attempted and possibly failed in containing the virus in the first place. What the Chinese government understands is that there are two separate wars that can be made one at will. For now, there is no hot war. And in fact, there's not even a cold war. There's very little involvement of troops or actual military. Instead, the two wars that I'm talking about are the optical and economic wars. The first being attempted control over media, over public perception, and over the public politics. While the second is a question of trade, a question of international infrastructure, and building those economic alliances that allow countries to thrive off of imports or exports. One case of China understanding where they could connect the two for a win is the case of John Cena. When he was promoting his latest film, Fast and Furious 9, in Taiwan, he referred to it as the country that will see it first. Do you see the problem? Well, of course, China doesn't want 
any recognition of Taiwan as a country. So what do they do to take action? They connect the optical and economic wars. They put financial pressure on John Cena and on the company behind Fast and Furious 9 and pressured him into making an apology and a retraction. There's been almost no action on this, at least not on the geopolitical stage and especially not against China from the US or other countries. There's simply no connection between the optical and economic lanes in almost any measure in dealing with China. Of course, there have been various attempts at diplomacy and at strategy and even at a soft trade war under the Trump years in using one or the other of these tools to try to accomplish anything. Of course, the point where it fails is the failure to put two and two together and fight both wars in any even remotely coherent way. This, in the most simple sense, is due to a collective action problem. It's much easier for the Chinese state-run capitalist organization in which the government has a top-down control over all of the companies involved to mobilize economic power and to solve those exact coordination problems. In the United States, it's much more difficult. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of companies competing for the very top, while the US government is heavily influenced by lobbying, insular influences, and even foreign influences, often disorienting it to the point of failure. Not only that, but there's a distinct fear, a fear of populism, of authoritarianism, from any type of government action. You see this from the right wing in the form of the Tea Party, in the form of radical libertarianism that looks at any type of government interference, particularly in the economy, even for national security reasons, as some type of socialism, as some type of takeover, as some type of violation of fundamental rights, etc, etc, etc. Insert whatever hyperbole you've heard on Fox News in the past 8 to 12 years. You get a similar reaction, however, on the left as well, looking at these types of security-oriented movements as somehow being fascistic, as somehow being overreach, even though they were regular fixtures of American government, of Western government, of democratic government for centuries before, say, the 90s or the 2000s. There needs to be a trust in factual judgments. There needs to be an understanding that a government will try to accomplish the goals that it publicly says it's trying to solve. This is not always the case. However, with clearly observable and reinforceable actions, actions such as tariffs, actions such as subsidies, actions such as coordinated media and economic protections against the actions of a Chinese regime, these are things that can be clearly observed by the public and where the government can be kept in line by public opinion. This skepticism of the ability for the US government to fight back against the Chinese regime might not really be a symptom of pragmatic judgment, but rather of pattern manipulation. 
we've talked frequently about how useful it is to understand the inherent patterns and the bases upon which people make judgments. Essentially, when people are dealing with scenarios, they often resort to historical and personal comparisons. This can range from the actions of everyday voters to top government officials. And unfortunately, the situation that we've possibly just randomly stumbled upon is one where some of those fundamental patterns map to things that are incredibly frightening and that you have a real reason to oppose. Things like the invasion of Iraq, or the Patriot Act, or the PRISM mass surveillance program, all of which I've heavily criticized. As always with these types of comparisons, the problem isn't what they're comparing it to. The problem is that they are fundamentally different. China is not Iraq, and creating government policy, particularly one to secure and defend against targeting by the Chinese government, is fundamentally different from mass surveillance. Just because these are things that are done by the government does not mean they are the same. However, this vortex of emotional compulsion, this propping up of one thing that happened in the past that is emotionally weighing, and the conflation of that thing with anything that shares even one remote trait, such as the use of government power, is an incredibly self-destructive development that, quite frankly, I just can't stand. Just in the case of China, this has done heavy economic and geopolitical damage, not to mention damage to politics locally. However, you can see this phenomenon applying increasingly in many walks of American politics, from electoral and partisan politics, comparing the opposing party to communists or fascists, respectively, or whether it comes to insularization and the failure to deal with small groups that blatantly misrepresent the interests of a larger population. I may have an update in the future where I address more solutions, but for now, I'm mostly empty-handed. What I can tell you to do, however, is to fundamentally distrust those instinctive pattern recognitions, that the factual judgments need to be made. Of course, those factual judgments often need context. They both need the numbers, the actual financial dealings, the records, and the possible influences and connections that go into a decision, as well as the tools to put two and two together in a very complicated situation. The latter, and in many cases some of the former, is what I try to provide you on this program. And if you think that this is something that's been useful, either so far or in the future, then please, give your personal recommendation, something only you can give, to a friend, coworker, family member, or acquaintance. There is no better way to share an idea, to spread a podcast, or to create a political movement. If you want that to be decided by you, if you want that to be influenced by the principles of rationality, of evidence, and of consistency, then please help share the pod. If you want to do something else to help, you can also give us a 5-star review. You can give us feedback, either by that review, 
or by emailing metapoliticspodcast at gmail.com. You can give us a like, subscribe, and get excited for something bigger that may drop in a couple of weeks. But you never know. As always, if you do any of those things, then thank you.